Hey guys, it's Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, and it's time again to support Huracan. This is a fundraising comic convention for the Bethany Congressional Church of Eth Rockaway, New York, sent to us by our friend David Donovan, our friend of the show and patron, David Donovan. And why should you support Huracan? And this year it's being called Furnace Con as well for that Bethany Congregational Church of East Rockaway, New York. Well, let me tell you in his own words. Hurricane Sandy hit my hometown of East Rockaway, Long Island. Homes were flooded, trees were toppled, boats were thrown on the mainland, and many residents were forced from their homes and lost everything. The relief center after Hurricane Sandy was located at the Bethany Congressional Church of East Rockaway Gym for months. Neighbors affected by Hurricane Sandy came in and walked out with whatever they needed to get on with their lives. Hundreds of people came to the Bethany Church during the following months and the gym floor took a beating. The gym floor has been redone and looks great, but we still had to pay for it. And that is what Huracan, a comic art convention, that is how Huracan, a comic art convention, was born. In addition to housing the Relief Center, Bethany has hosted Next Step Ministries at the church every summer since Hurricane Sandy. Next Step went into the surrounding community and performs repairs for free. So why support Bethany Church? The church has been part of the community since 1885. The church runs the Thriftique, which is a thrift store that sells clothing and household items at very reduced prices to many low-income families in the area uh, to come by and buy these items they could not afford somewhere else. Bethany also collects food for the Long Island Council of Churches Emergency Food Pantry and makes weekly contributions. Bethany Church is a member of the UCC and is an open and affirming congregation. That means that everyone is welcome to worship regardless of race, creed, religious affiliation, or sexual orientation. This winter, the church's furnace failed and had to be replaced. As you can imagine, this was a costly repair and Furnace Con came to be. What will you find at Furnace Con? Furnace Con 2022, comic books, of course, but also comic book writers and artists, toys, food, local artists, collectibles, cosplay, fellowship, and much, much more. We hope you consider supporting Fur Furnace Con on June 4th, 2022, and Huracan on later this year on November 11th. So we have two cons this year. Um, if you're interested in supporting Bethany Church's, Church through their Venmo, you can do so at Bethany East Rock. It's Bethany hyphen East Rock, B-E-T-H-A-N-Y hyphen East Rock, E-A-S-T-R-O-C-K. And please include a note that your donation is toward the furnace. Um, if you have more information, you can contact David Donovan at Huracon, H-U-R-R-I-C-O-N at yahoo.com. Or give him a call, 516-209-1587. So support her Furnace Con on June 4th and save the date for Huracan later this year, November 11th, all to support this church's efforts in their community. Aloha, this is Jason from Hawaii. Welcome to a special edition of the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. In this episode, I will be interviewing writer Nancy Collins. She is here to promote Blade Runner Black Lotus. Now, this is a mini series from Titan Comics. 
It is a comic book sequel to the animated TV show that is on Adult Swim and I believe on Crunchyroll as well. Yes. Uh, first issue comes out on June 1st and issue two comes out on July 6th. Nancy, how are you doing today? Um, aloha and mahalo for having me. Um, yeah, I'm doing just fine. Um, uh, it's a, a beautiful uh, spring, late spring afternoon in, in, in Macon, Georgia, which is now slowly turning itself into summer. Um, or, or it's already like 90 degrees out. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but we're having a, having a wonderful time. All right. So now, listeners, before we get into the interview, I just want to go over Nancy's incredible history. Nancy, you know, I did research on you. I'm going to say most of my information I got from Wikipedia. Um, and like I, and I, and listeners, I told Nancy, she can correct me at any time. Now, you won the Bram um, Stoker Award for first novel winner for your first book, Sunglasses After Dark, that was written in 1990. Is that correct? Uh, it actually came out in 89. Oh, okay. All right. uh, but I won the award in 90. They give the awards out a year after the, the publication. Okay. Um, uh, but yes, I, I did win the, the Bram Stoker uh, Award for, uh, from the, it's now the Horror Writers Association. It used to be the Horror Writers of America, but oh. now it's the Horror Writers Association. And so they could keep the HWA <laughs> be more inclusive and keep, still keep their initials. Okay. And then now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you founded the International Horror Guild, is that correct? Yes, I did. Uh, that was um, back in the mid-90s. Um, uh, uh, Sunglasses also won the uh, uh, British Fantasy Society's uh, Icarus Award, oh. also for, for first novel. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and it was nominated for several other awards, but those are the ones that won. Mm -hmm. nominated for the tip tree and the john w campbell and the uh awards and the um uh, uh, on some of them but <laughs> it was nominated for a few few a few awards at the time off the cuff question for that british award did you did you go to england were you they, there they mailed it to me oh. they mailed it to me. yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, the British Fantasy uh, Society isn't that well healed. <laughs> um, oh, but that would have been so cool if you if you got a free trip out of that. Oh, uh, so it would have been nice. It, I, I would have loved it. But no, I got I got sent one, uh, sent mine in the mail. Joe Lansdale got his uh, got his sent to him as well. We both won that year. Oh. And, uh, I think they've changed the design of the awards since then, but they're um, big, large, heady, kind of dildo looking <laughs> uh, uh, awards at the time that was uh, that like, yeah, I get, I think they're supposed to look like elder gods or something like that, but, but it was like, it was about, you know, a foot long and about, you know, a foot, you know, like six, eight inches long and about, five inches around and less colored and <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I'm I, I'm not I'm not laughing at your uh, but it's just how you're describing it it's like 
Yeah, I mean, basically when Joe got his, he called me up because he knew I was getting mine. And he said, hey, did yours come with big red straps too? And I went, no. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was an honor, but yeah, I, I, I was somewhat surprised when I opened up the box. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was a good thing you didn't go on that trip, you know, or you weren't invited because you'd be like, both me and Joe, it's probably a good thing. We were, <laughs> the Brits probably not wouldn't have been terribly prepared for us. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to move on. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, um. As we mentioned, right, um, that you know, actually, so your first novel is Sunglasses After Dark that was published in 1989. And this is the first book in the the Sonja Blue series, is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes. And then also, too, you wrote the um, Vamp novel series, is that correct? Yeah, yeah the young adult, uh, it was called Vamp, so it was a young adult uh, series and the Gal Gotham series. Vamps is a young adult series uh, that was, I was asked to, hire, to write something that was across between Twilight and uh, Gossip Girls. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, and so I gave them what they thought they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it, it was my first attempt at, um, yeah, at writing young adult. I learned a lot writing that so it was a if nothing else i i um got me outside of my usual thought processes and actually having to write for a younger audience mm -hmm. uh, and then gal gotham was a urban fantasy that was a urban fantasy series that came out in the uh in the tens uh, and then also too, you also wrote um, for other prose novels in some other prose um, novels. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, you wrote like the short story in Adventures of the Batman. Is that correct? Work for hire stuff, yeah. And then also too, you also wrote for Hellboy Odd Job. That also is another prose novel anthology. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've I've been friends with Mike McNola for decades now. Uh, um, yeah, he and I, he and I have known each other since we both lived in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I, I remember when Hellboy was originally going to be the demon at mm -hmm. DC Comics, and they turned it down. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was originally the original. The original idea for the for his, he wanted to do the demon, and they turned it down. So that eventually ended up becoming Hellboy. Oh, okay. Like we're doing a re retooling of the demon. Yeah. So, and then also too, and I also came across this. And correct me if I'm wrong. In 1995, you wrote a prose novel, Fantastic Four to Free Atlantis. Is that correct? Yeah, that was a that was a yeah that was another work for hire for Marvel. Um, yeah, they um, they were hiring a bunch of you know prose writers and uh, to do mm -hmm. high ends. And I wanted to do a Submariner novel, mm -hmm. and and they said, and I pitched the Submariner to him and said, no, no, we're not, we have, there's not enough interest in that. We don't have any movies with him coming out. But how about the Fantastic Four? And I said, can I put Namor in it? And they went, sure. So that 
<laughs> so basically, that's how I got around, got to write my Submariner novel. Because the Fantastic Four are barely in it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, most of it's about the about Namor, and uh, yeah, that's how I got got around to writing my Submariner novel. So and uh, yeah, that's that's the last time I worked for Marvel. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but that's so cool. It's like, hey, can I bring can I put Submariner in there? Yeah, sure. Okay, you know. <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, now this is a Submariner novel masquerading as a Fantastic Four novel. <laughs> Not that anyone cared about that either. <laughs> so. Well, but the thing is, but if you think about it, too, because Submariner kind of played, you know, in the early Fantastic Four stories, um, Submariner played a key role in the Fantastic oh, Four. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I don't know how they in- inter- intend to introduce him into the Marvel Universe without having the Fantastic Four. Yeah, could, but then he don't. But he, you know, like I said, it, it's it's all problematic. And I've learned, learned I've, I've since figured out that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is only tangentially involved with the comics anyway. So yeah. you can, it, it's whatever universe you need it to be in. So mm-hmm. I guess I'll find out more when I go to see Doctor Strange. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, also too, you worked. Um, you also, and I'm not going to list your um non too much of your nonfiction work, but the one I want to focus on was, you wrote a nonfiction book called "From Bayou to Abyss." Exactly. I, John- I have a story in there. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I have an essay in there. That's oh. about. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of us in there, and, and I wrote a, a essay on uh, uh, creating um, uh, when I using John John Constantine in my run on Swamp Thing and introducing a new member of the Constantine family. Yeah, oh, okay. So, uh, I, who's, a, who's a demonic pirate uh-huh. <laughs> called Dark Constantine. To my, I, I recently discovered actually does have a fan base. Mm-hmm. So there are people who go, I want to see another Dark Conrad story. And I said, well, don't tell me, tell DC. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. <clears throat> <now. laughs> All right, and then for comics now, like this part, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you were the first female writer um, on these following comic book series, um, the Swamp Thing, and that was from is Volume Two of Swamp Thing, and your run was from 1991 to 1993. Yes, and then the the issues that you wrote for were like from 110 to 139 annual six and seven yes and then during your run of this um during your run the swamp thing went from a dc line to a vertical line yeah i was the first writer to be published under the vertigo imprint that is how how off the cuff question how awesome was that well at the time it was like well we'll see if this takes off or not yeah Yeah. i mean we had we had a big um you know uh meeting about that and, and also doing crossovers within vertigo because they uh they they really didn't really know exactly what to do with it except uh-huh. they wanted to separate it off from the regular dc universe at the time uh, and that was like me neil gaiman um pete milligan uh grant Morrison, um and not uh i'm trying to think who else was involved uh rachel pollock um in terms of writers uh 
brought in and they basically brought us in to um, figure out what to do mm -hmm. um, in terms of doing crossovers and try to promote the, uh, the, the line and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I was the first woman to uh, uh, write Swamp Thing. And I was the first and, and for like decades. I think they've since had another woman write it. Mm -hmm. so, oh yes, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, during your Swamp Thing, where I'm going to jump to a question already ahead, but did you work with? Um, of course, you had to. Of course, you worked with Karen Berger. Mm -hmm. Um. Did you work with Tom Pyre and? I knew Tom. I didn't work with Tom. Oh, okay. I know Tom. Uh, he was a friend. I didn't work with Karen that much. I, my editor at the time was um, uh, Stuart Moore, who he and I worked very closely together. Um, and uh, and uh, I had uh, had several. I had several artists. Although the, the one that did most of the, most of the penciling work was Scott Eaton, mm -hmm. but. My my inker Kim DeMolder was with me from start to finish. Uh huh. That's a key, by the way. People go, hey, how about you girls working on Swamp Thing? You and Kim, and I was going, well, Kim's a dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, it's it's a man's name. <laughs> now the other thing too about your Swamp Thing run was that, um, um. Was because my understanding was that you had a sorry. This is another off the cuff question. Was that your love for the Swamp Thing was it went back more to the, you? You went back to like the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson. Oh, yeah. yeah, very much from the start. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I was a comic book kid back in the day. I mean, I started reading. I mean, I've I've always read comics because mm -hmm. it, it was just part of the culture I was soaking in mm -hmm. growing up. But I started actively. Uh, buying and collecting comics when I was about 11, 12. I guess that's about the age you really start doing it when you, you, you start having your own money, pocket money, and you can go and get what you want. And back then, they were, they were 15, 20 cents and a piece, and you know, they were at the grocery store and the drugstore. Yes. In mm -hmm. And, and uh, I ended up, uh, I was also a monster kid from the very get-go. Mm -hmm. So being both comics and com and monsters is, and that was the early seventies. That's when that was when the heyday of the the, the second heyday of, uh, or I should say, maybe the silver age of the monster comics. Yeah, they hadn't been allowed under the comic code for like a decade or two. By mm -hmm. that. Yes, because um, because I'm going to say I vaguely because I I and you can correct me if I'm wrong because. I vaguely remember, I think, like, like, Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. Frederick Wortham. Yeah. Oh, uh, for the seduction of the seduction of the innocent. Uh, yeah. He, where he was kind of blaming uh, all kinds of ills on, on uh, juvenile delinquents on comic books. It is a, it is weird. I had this weird connection to him because he was my first husband's mother's uh, mentor. She was a, he was a, psychologist yes and psychiatrist and she was a child psychologist and she was he was her mentor uh-huh and so she went to he he, he mentored her as she was becoming a child psychologist and uh so i got to you know 
most comic book people were just, oh, Dr. Wortham, they hated him, but she she spoke glowingly of him mm-hmm. because she didn't have any idea what what the side effect of all of that had been. Yes. And um, but I also learned that he um, uh, he had been the psychiatrist who interviewed uh, one. It, he did one of the first interviews of an act, what we would consider a modern serial killer back in the 1920s. Oh. Uh, which was Albert Fish. Uh huh. And so he was, yeah, yeah, he was like one of the first uh, 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 psychiatric uh, criminal profilers. So he saw a lot of shit. Let's <laughs> just put it politely. And, uh, and, and, and weirdly enough, he, even though he had a very low opinion of comic books, he apparently loved uh, fanzine fandom. And he loved it. He thought, he thought that was amazing. And he was like all for like fanzine fandom. So he was, a, he was an interesting man. Uh, I, I think somewhat misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but then again, he also kind of misunderstood things as well. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's my, that's my connection to the comics code. Introduction <laughs> 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 of the innocent. That's how we ended up with the comics code where you couldn't have zombies or vampires or werewolves or, uh, in comics for like over, you know, it's from like the late fifties all the way up until early seventies. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah, no undead, no, no undo. Uh, no drug, no no drug use, no, or no right. information of drug use or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it was a real weird hodgepodge of stuff they they didn't want shown in comics because, on yeah. the assumption that it was all little kids reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I remember, like, I vaguely remember um, early parts of the seventies because, yeah, like I said, I think like I remember that's when all of a sudden we start seeing. Um, Frankenstein popping up in Marvel Comics. Oh, I. Yeah, Tim uh, Dracula. Yes. Werewolf by Night. Um, Marvel leaned into it pretty strong, stronger than than uh, uh, DC did at the time. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Doc, uh, Marvel had always kind of like fiddled with that because Doctor Strange kind of almost went into that area. Yes. 60s but yes. you know it was magic so you could say that it wasn't the same as like horror it was yes. mysticism as opposed yes. to and um uh the um and the warren uh magazines got away with it because they were black and white and they were yep. magazines they weren't comic books as long as it wasn't published in color mm-hmm. or a comic book format you could have whatever you wanted in them wow um because I remember, I still remember, I think, I remember reading an issue of, actually, I remember, I remember more the visual of, I think, Swamp Thing, issue number two, The Patchwork Man. Mm-hmm. Oh. That, uh, it, yeah, that my, was, one that, the one that, I think is number three is the one that brought me in, mm-hmm. uh, which was the, the werewolf. Oh. Uh, yeah, and uh, where where we got to see Bernie Wrightson's interpretation of a werewolf for the first time, mm-hmm. and and it was a revelation for me. I had always been a Wolfman fan, a werewolf movie fan. Uh huh. I always, but up until that point, all the you know, due to budget constraints and and you know, 
technological issues in terms of like makeup and special effects. Yeah. It all, you know, you watch a werewolf movie and it was very obviously for the most part, a guy in a suit, you know, mm-hmm. it, with hair glued on his face and fangs in his mouth, fake fangs in his mouth. I mean, yeah. you, it, it, you had to, you had to have decent lighting to be able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you didn't have any of those constraints in the comics and what yeah. Bernie showed in Swamp Thing was a literally if a humanoid wolf mm-hmm. standing on legs, I mean, it literally an amalgamation of more wolf than man, but yes. You know, and it was like, yes, this is the werewolf I, I've always wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And that hooked me for good. Mm-hmm. And my, my, and I, you know, I've, I, in fact, I, I just finished writing a, an appreciation for Bernie in a, in a book that's coming out. Uh, I think they're you know, it's being kickstarted right now. I can't I can't tell you right the name of it. Uh, mm-hmm. but most of the most of the tributes are drawings and stuff like that. I turned in mm-hmm. uh, a little, you know, since I ended up writing Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. I was talking about how Bernie Wrightson's artwork was incredibly influential to me and led me into being a writer and, and being in comics and. Um, uh, it was a combination of that issue of, of uh, with Bernie, that issue of Swamp Thing, and also the, uh, the I think it's Eerie, which has the story Jennifer in it, by written by Bruce Jones and drawn by him. Mm-hmm. That was quite, you know, it, and that was also, they also got to understand at that time, it was also the underground comics movement. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yeah. and, a lot of, uh, and it was like divided into two categories that you had the more political, um, Type cartoon, you know, underground cartoons like stuff with Zap and with yes. counterculture mm-hmm. with um, uh, Robert R. Crumb and mm-hmm. yeah. Sheldon and um, Dave Sheridan and stuff like that. And then you had the other, and then there was the horror undergrounds, which were um, kind of like a, a, a modern rebirthing of the EC comics that, that Bernie came up through. Bernie, yeah. Jim Starlin, and uh, uh, Richard Corbin—they mm-hmm. uh, all came up to that, and and eerie and creepy were they were grabbing these guys up and and running with them, yes. and 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 that's how I got to learn about underground comics mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and and EC comics, and you know, it, basically, I was getting getting a history on. You know, the hidden, the hidden, the hidden history of comics at that yes. time. You know. oh. So if I was, I may have been alive, but I wasn't cognizant of, uh, you know, I was, well, I mean, you know, when DEC bit the dust, I was, I was a baby. Mm-hmm. And so I, my earliest, you know, I was like maybe four or five when Marvel really started hit the ground running with, with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. Yes. And so, it took a lot, you know, what I knew is what I knew. And of mm-hmm. course, just had the, the you know, the triumph, the ever, the ever existing triumvirate of, of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Yeah. Who had been around for decades at that point. So, oh, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh. Um, sorry, now I'm just going to continue on. Um, you also were the first female writer to and when we're talking about the um the um the the um 
the black and white comic, Vampirella. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Gown's first woman to write Vampirella, who at that time was celebrating her 45th anniversary. Uh-huh. Um, she's now turned 50. Mm-hmm. There's been several women since then. In fact, I'm going to be, this weekend, I'm going up to uh, uh, Woodstock, Georgia, here in uh, about 100 miles, 100 and something miles away from here, um, uh, to a friend of mine's comic book store, Dr. Knows comic book, Comics and Books, I think. Oh. And uh, there'll be a few uh, creators there, including my friend, uh, Christina uh, Linzer, uh, Christina Deeks Linzer who uh, Mike, uh, Michael Linzer's uh, wife, uh, oh, yes. Dawn. Yeah. Yeah, and, and she was she wrote uh, Vampirella for about six, seven issues, I think, uh, as well. So she, she, she followed me in the Vampirella writing uh, mm-hmm. area. That is so cool. And then also, too, you wrote, um, you're also the first female writer for Army of Darkness, Furious Road that came well, out in just for Army of Darkness. I mean, Army of Darkness changes every you know. It, it's it's kind of like a mini series, you know, mm-hmm. a series of mini series as opposed to an actual uh, title. You know, it's like yeah. they, they change they change their rotate tires on a regular basis, yes. and oh. and mm-hmm. and proposed that and Furious Road was my was my chance at it, and we did that was about six seven years ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then also, too, for IDW back in 2015, you adapted um, your novel, Sunglasses After Dark, into the reprint. I, that, oh, was, the reprint. that was the, uh, that was the uh, uh, hardcover uh, updated and corrected edition. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sunglasses, are, I actually adapted Sunglasses After Dark with, with artist Stan Shaw for Glenn Danzig's erotic publications back in the 90s from mm-hmm. 95 to 97 um and uh and we had a chance to get it republished at idw and and uh we'd stand it since we couldn't afford to buy the color sets from from danzig mm-hmm. um but we but we still had the rights to everything else mm-hmm. work and and we couldn't get the lettering done we had to, uh, it had to be re-lettered, mm-hmm. recolored, and I took the opportunity to also <clears throat> punch up some of the dialogue and change it so it read, read more like a graphic novel and less like a, a illustrated novel. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Stan taught himself digital coloring. Mm-hmm. And it took us three, three or four years to get the book out. Mm-hmm. But um, because of that, and then when it did finally was released, uh, it, it ended up getting held on the docks. It, was, it missed its Christmas window because it got held up on the docks in Long in uh, California, I think, um, Long, mm-hmm. uh, due to a stri- uh, due to a longshoreman's shot strike. Oh, so so it missed it missed uh, getting into the stores. Uh, so a lot of people didn't even know it existed, mm-hmm. but it. But it's a, an amazing piece of work. Uh, it, it, it's an amazing, you know, Stan did an amazing job. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You can find it. It's the, it's out of print physically, but you can get it through. Um, uh, you can buy it from uh, uh, IDW digitally, and I, I guess through I, Comixology as well. Although I know 
Kindle. Uh, I know Amazon's managed to really screw up mm -hmm. Comixology recently, so I don't know what that situation is. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it's a yeah, it, it's yeah, it's a the adaptation of my first novel about a female female punk vampire slash vampire slayer. Mm -hmm. You know, she has issues. <laughs> that's, that's usually how I describe it. She has issues. <laughs> so. I'm just going to off the cuff. So going back, so I know the, um, the sunglasses, um, after dark, how many books did you write for that series? Um, right now there's, uh, let's say there's sunglasses after dark in, in the blood, uh, painted black, a dozen black roses, uh, darkest heart. Uh, those are the five novels. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a short story collection called, uh, dead roses for a blue lady. Oh, okay. Also, there's uh, I've been working on a, a, a long delayed sequel called Kill City because mm -hmm. I'm having trouble finding a publisher willing to pay advance on it because basically Twilight destroyed that market. Mm -hmm. Trying to you know it's a vampire novel. You know, is it young adult? No, no, mm -hmm. we don't want it. Mm -hmm. And. Um, but I, I've, I've gotten about halfway through um, Kill City over the last you know, eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. and I'm still working on it. Um, I, I've had, you can, my Patreon, if people are interested on my Patreon, they can read it uh, if they join. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've published so far, I, I've got about, I can say about 100 pages of it done. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, so that's that's that along with the graphic novel. So um, it, uh, it comprises the entire Sonya Blue universe, so to speak. I'm just going to jump right in. Do you want to um, promote your Patreon page and your social media pages? It's patreon.com, Nancy A. Collins. Okay. All, all one word, Nancy A. Collins. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a Twitter. Mm hmm which is Twitter at Nancy Collins. It's not verified or anything like that, but just look for my header is, is it's a header that has swamp thing on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you, if you, if you, if you're looking for Nancy A. Collins, you'll, you'll see swamp thing. That's me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, uh, and then there's, um, I have a Facebook. Mm -hmm. page that I don't really do much on anymore because I really don't like um, what Facebook has been doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, 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 you can find me there mm -hmm. as well uh, under Nancy A. Collins, but it's, um, I have, I have a personal page and I have a, a like page, you know, a fan page. Yeah. But I don't have I don't do much on that mm -hmm. anymore, um, because and, and also every time I, I post something some somehow they managed to find some way of you know like restricting my account because I I don't suffer fools lightly mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so um, you know once you get on start getting on their radar you know, mm -hmm. it's hard to get off of it <sighs> but. Um, um, and just the, the whole um, political, uh, yeah, I, I don't like being, 
I don't mean, I don't like being prod, deliberately prodded to respond mm-hmm. to stuff um, that's going to aggravate me and then get me banned. Mm-hmm. What's the point of that? Mm-hmm. What is the point of that, folks? Yeah. So yeah, I have, I have, um, and I may end up be leaving Twitter relatively soon for the same reason. But I, I'm looking into other um, forms of social media, such as Mastodon. Um, I've just recently opened an account at Mastodon, but I haven't posted much there. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's it's just a one of those things where I don't understand the point of diminishing returns on people. Uh, and social media, you know, social media was, you know, is well and fine as long as, you know, people know how to behave. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, don't come, don't come, don't come into my house and take a dump on my living room carpet. Because yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's basically what it, what it, what it amounts to. Yeah. Because basically it's just bottom line. It's just. It's bottom line is respect both ways. So yeah, yeah. Line. Well, you have to maintain. You have to be good at at uh, controlling your your feed. Yes. Because you know, just like you know, it's like I, I'm I'm just amazed at how many guys treat Facebook as if it's a bar where they can just come sidling up to you. And, hey, baby. Yes. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, 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 These are all things, um, uh, first world problems, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Nancy. I'm going. I'm going to continue on. Are you so sorry about that? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's fine. That's fine. All right. So I'm gonna. So, where did you grow up? Because I know right now you're in Macon, Georgia. Correct. Yes, I'm. I'm not from here. I, I originally I grew up in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. in Arkansas. Um, and uh, I've lived all over, I've lived all over the eastern seaboard and, and I think I've lived as far as Denver and it's mm-hmm. as far west as I got. But uh, yeah, I've lived in um, Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. New Orleans for a bit, quite, yes. quite a while, New York City, mm-hmm. uh, Denver, I was living in Pennsylvania for a while, um, Atlanta extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been. I've probably lived in Georgia longer than anywhere uh, else besides where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I've bounced around quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, over the last forty years. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm a, I'm originally from Arkansas. Oh, okay. But not and not and not the Ozarks. I'm from the the Mississippi River Delta. I grew up in the Bayou Country, which, in fact, I'm probably the only person to write Swamp Thing who actually grew up in Swamp Country. Yes. <laughs> so. Yes, that's. I, I remember. I think one of the um, interviews that some of the information I got from um, various interviews is, you know, when you wrote the Swamp Thing, you're yeah. I remember. I think. Because when you wrote the Swamp Thing, you, you were in, you were living in New Orleans, New Orleans at that time. Was that correct? I was living in New Orleans. Yeah, I lived in New Orleans from 81 to 90, uh, 91 mm-hmm. or not, uh, early 92. So, yeah. Yeah, so, I, was, I was there for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, because I got, and I'm just going to, for the listeners, I got that information from. Yeah, no, I was from 82 to 92. That's it. Exactly. I was, I was living in Memphis in 81. So. So, and I, because I remember I got that little bit of information from an interview that you did last year, um, the YouTube podcast, Comic by Perch. Yes. I remember you mentioned that. So I, I just thought that was pretty amazing that, you know, when you wrote the swamp, you know how the swamp is and, you know, yeah. 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 I, I, I know what, I know how, it, yeah, I grew up being taught to look where I walk. Yes. Uh, because, uh, you know, that vine might be a water moccasin, or might be an alligator. Yes. Or, or that rock might be a snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you can appreciate beauty, but always make sure you know where, you, where you're walking. Yeah. Um, and, and also just, you know, always, you know, you know like my childhood, I, I basically would just, my parents might as well just have dipped me in DDT. Mm-hmm. The mosquitoes and everything, you know, you know, just spray off on you. Yeah. Like it's, like it's you know, like Axe body spray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But you send your kids out. Yeah, send your kids out to play in the backyard. Maybe they'll come home with malaria. Who knows? <laughs> so it's, oh, the good old days of the, the late 60s, days, early yeah. 70s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Back back when they were, back when we like to think that nothing was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm not, and please, I'm not being sarcastic or anything. But I mean, oh, you know, because like I grew up in the '70s. I mean, I'm a, I'm a latchkey. I remember I was a latchkey kid. You know, it's like, you know, eight nine years old, come home. You know, you know, my mom was working, so I had you know, open the door, make sure you don't talk to strangers. You know, yeah. sit down in front of the TV, watch. You know, watch. You know. So, yeah, I, I get people who go, oh, yeah, the 70s, back, that was absolutely, the good old days, like the 70s, and I was like, you, you mean like during Watergate and and, and the rise of the, the modern serial killer, like, you know, because that was like, you know, like the Hillside Strangler and, 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 and Charlie Manson and, and uh, BTK and all that. It's like, that's, you know, you know. Yeah, that that's my memory. That, that's a lot of my memories of the seventies. Oh yeah, that and the uh, Patty Hearst kidnapping. Oh, oh my oh. God, I re- that's right. Sorry, listeners, we're not getting too <laughs> political, but we're just kind of reminiscing. That's all it is because yeah, it's just memory. It's just memory. Yeah, it's just because I still remember. Um, the Paul Getty uh, the third kidnapping too about that time. I don't that one. I it vaguely sounds familiar, but I remember. I remember watching a news report now i don't know if it was a year afterwards or anything but kent state remember that yeah, kent state it's in <sighs> vietnam was going on too yeah <laughs> it's like yet the good old days <laughs> yeah. i remember driving i remember my parents were driving me to a beach and i remember listening on the radio um and again listeners i'm sorry we're going back memory we're going down memory lane <laughs> But yeah, I mean, but my grandmother, she said, but people wanted to tell her about the good old days of depression. And she was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember when Nixon announced his resignation. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I was, I was, we were watching TV. We watched it. You know, but yeah. I was to get on that air, that helicopter, and fly the hell off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, I, remember, I remember all that. And. Uh, 
yeah, that, that's that's a difference in 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 being a teenager during that time yeah. as a little kid. You know, mm -hmm. but, you know, and some of it you remember. It's like I vaguely remember the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't remember. I don't remember how the adults re reacted to it that well, mm -hmm. except they were upset. Mm -hmm. That that's my knowledge of it. So. All right. Sorry, Nancy. I'm going to move on. All right. Um, okay. So, so listeners, so as we talked about, you know, like Nancy grew up, you know, in like the sixties and, you know, seventies. Now we, now Nancy already talked about, you know, some of the first comics that you read. I wanted to ask you, what kind of books did you read growing up? Oh, um, my family was very, um, encouraging of literacy. My, my great grandmother was a was a uh, uh, teacher mm -hmm. in the family. I still we still have teachers in the family. My my kid sister was a teacher for thirty years. My uh, niece uh, graduates this month in just a couple of days, actually, and she'll be a teacher. Oh, okay, and, um, congratulations! Thank you. And uh, so it, it runs in the family. Mm -hmm. And I grew up reading, you know, stuff like Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, the, the 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 basic, you know, you know like all the basics, like uh, P.W. Eastman, like No Dog Go and Are You My Mother, mm -hmm. uh, all the Doctor Seuss. My, my grandfather actually collected Doctor Seuss from like back in the day, from back yeah. in the forties. He had stuff that went back into the to like when before he was writing for children. Wow. Um, so he had old old stuff, and so I had a lot of that uh, stuff like. Weird stuff like Flat Stanley, oh, yeah. which is a story about this little boy who'd ran through the house. And he would always slam the door, mm -hmm. and 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 he slammed the door one day, and the shipper had fell on him and squashed him flat, but he's still alive. <laughs> and so he was Flat Stanley, and and his and, and some of it was was beneficial, like he could like go under doors without having to open them and just slide them under the door. Mm -hmm. he, he decided it wasn't that great when he got caught up in a window shade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but yeah the it, it, stuff like that you know it was, it was the the great and then when i started I, I taught myself to read at the age of three or four uh-huh because i got bored waiting for my uh mother or my grandparents to find time to read to me so i mm -hmm. taught myself to read and write um and then I started reading stuff like E.B. White, like Charlotte's Web, and Madeline's mm -hmm. uh, Wrinkle in Time, mm -hmm. Little, um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was probably the first, it, it, Charlotte's Web and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory probably, and A Wrinkle in Time were probably the first books I remember reading over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then my mom had always been a science fiction fan. And she and so I kind of inherited some of her books mm -hmm. and started reading, you know, some older 1950s science fiction, 1940s science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, I moved into that, and uh, and my grandfather was a horror fan, mm -hmm. and, and he was an Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. He was a big Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. He had a huge collection of like original pulp magazines of uh, Argosy with like the original Tarzans and. John Carter from Mars stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had all that. So it, it, my my mother's atti attitude is I don't care what she reads as long as she's reading because there were so many other 
kids and adults around us mm-hmm. in Arkansas who were illiterate, mm-hmm. you know, who just didn't read. Yeah. My, my uncle Bo, my dad's older brother, mm-hmm. uh, he was a big uh, Western fan. My, so my grandpa, my grandfather, my mom's grandfather was too. He, uh, uh, my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather was a Max Brand fan, mm-hmm. and um, my uncle was a Louis Lamar. <laughs> so they would get into arguments as to who was the better Western writer. And, um, uh, and so that was, uh, uh, I, 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 so I grew up with that. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading things like that. And, and, and I started just branching out more into first short story, short story collections. Mm-hmm before getting into it. but a lot of the short story collections back when I was a kid uh Alfred Hitchcock had a uh, series of uh uh anthologies for younger readers I can't remember oh. what it's called uh I, I think it was called Alfred Hitchcock Juniors and 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 they were like some of the they were literally Twilight Zone and Night Gallery level writers and stories in fact most of these stories in there showed up in twilight zone and night gallery they had like ray bradbury richard matheson yes. Robert Block, um you know some of the classics uh it's like you know, you know where i look you know the monkey's paw and, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, or brom stoker's ghost stories er er james a lot of classic um uh Victorian era ghost stories and stuff like that. Yes. And uh, Manly Wade Wellman, you know, all these people from the pulp era as well. Yes. And I had access to those, and mm-hmm. those were some of my favorites. And uh, and that's where I, uh, and when I got a little bit older, where I could like read a novel from mm-hmm. one end to the other. Yes. More adult novels, I would I would recognize those names from being when I was a kid, and also from like watching Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, I saw this on Twilight Zone. I recognize this story, or or, or Night Gallery. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, it took me a long time to get into Lovecraft because he's not really an easy read when you're mm-hmm. a kid. And I was in high school before I really started getting into being able to read Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I uh, I was also reading Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I'd been a um, been reading like Richard Matheson and Ray Bradbury and Robert Sheckley, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bob Silverberg, mm-hmm. uh, Isaac Asimov, mm-hmm. uh, Sturgeon, um, you know all these uh, Zena Henderson, um, all these uh, writers from the fifties, sixties, like. Um, from anywhere from the 40s through the 60s, uh, Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all just kind of like kind of bubbled up. And then I discovered, like I said, through, uh, I just, then I discovered like Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that led me actually, Robert E. Howard actually led me into reading Lovecraft. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, because he was like the first other author to write a Lovecraft story, a, a Cthulhu mythos story. Oh. And that was during Lovecraft's time, mm-hmm. lifetime. They, they, it was a collaboration they did. Oh. That introduced me to the, and then that's how I discovered the pulp writers and that whole, you know, so it, it was all interconnected. Yes. 
But, and this was pre-internet. So you, you were kind of like stumbling on, around blind, groping around trying to find, and, and, and thank God for my local grocery store and drugstore because there are spinner racks of paperbacks and comics. Was, I um, and, and, so, and some of it ended up in the library too, but it's yes. this I, I stumbled upon in, in, the, in the commercial space as opposed mm-hmm. to the library. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, so I slowly kind of got absorbed into it that way. I'm going to say, Nancy, I'm going to be honest with you. I do remember books being on spinner racks, not comic books, but I do remember that. Yeah. 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 It wasn't that long ago. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back before you didn't have to go to a bookstore to find books. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You didn't have to go to a comic book store to find comics. Mm-hmm. In fact, there, there, there were a handful of comic book stores back then in, in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, most, of, most of them were in pool halls, bus, bus stations, uh, drug stores, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, this is going to lead me to my next question. That's a perfect segue. So, Drew, the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast host submitted this question. Do you remember going to your very first comic shop? You know, like that sold exclusively or just comics? Um, let me think. I think the very first one was um, Memphis Comics in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, there have been a couple of places that kind of sold comics that I'd wanted, but they, that that was they had a little that they were in a little corner. Of, you know, they were in head shops, mm-hmm. you know, corner of it. The first one that was completely dedicated to it was this. Uh, it no longer exists. It was across the street from Memphis State University, mm-hmm. on Highland Avenue, and uh, and that that was the first place where I had a pull list and whatever. And one of the other one of the other regulars was Jerry Lawler. <laughs> the king, oh. of, king of wrestling. Yes, and 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 I've known Jerry for like forty years. Uh, I haven't seen him in dog's years, but mm-hmm. he would come and get his comics there, and he would park his van out front, uh, which you know very few people were allowed to park out front. You know, they had a parking lot in the back, but Jerry was allowed to park his van out front, and he had a conversion van. And he's actually a pretty good artist too. He's very much. In the, in the style of like Buscema and uh, John Buscema and uh, yeah. Frank Frazetta. Oh. And, and he had airbrushed his own van with their, uh, you know, the, 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 the Conan the Death Dealer thing where it's hitting uh, yes. on top of the mound of, of, of skulls of this, yeah. and the woman wrapped around his leg. He uh-huh. said, except instead of Conan's face, it was his. <laughs> Jerry had a sweet van. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and he and I would talk Robert E. Howard and Conan and Solomon Kane and all that when whenever whenever I was there. So he's yeah. So yeah, and I didn't even know he was a wrestler at the time. I just knew he was Jerry. The Jerry the guy with the van with his face on it. <laughs> Nancy, that is so cool. That is such a cool story. (laughs) That is so cool. Um, Now, I'm going to just, 
I just want to mention this right now, you know, listeners, if you, and Nancy too, if you hear big thunder, um, um, thunder behind, um, behind, you know, in the audio podcast right now, I'm going through a thunderstorm right now that just popped up. So <laughs> yeah. we had one last night. Yeah. Oh God. <clears throat> yeah. I think, um, yesterday, um, yeah, yesterday there was, um, a big storm system that hit the Big Island and Maui. Uh, and then I think uh, what it did for part of um, one section in Maui, it basically washed out the road. So that's pretty oh. bad. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Nice. So I'm going to continue on. So, so um, I, I know you mentioned about, you know, the, um, Bernie Wrightson swamp thing kind of got you start, you know, got you kind of like gave you that spark to start writing. So, you know, how did your journey start um, writing novels? How, how did you, how did that get started? Well, mainly because if you want to make any money in the, in, as a writer, you know, you got to write novels now. The, the days of being able to make a living writing short fiction are long gone. And, mm -hmm. And and if I could still if I could if I could still make my living writing for cult magazines writing short stories that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy that. Uh, the slog of writing a novel is pretty uh, pretty grueling, and it's now becoming less and less um, financially feasible. Since they it used to be they'd pay you half up front and half mm -hmm. upon completion. Now they've divided it into thirds, where they pay you a third up third up front, a third when you turn it in, and a third on publication. Sorry. And they and they could always never publish it. Mm -hmm. So there's like so it's it's just it's just you know it's becoming more and more untenable. But mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, but I got involved. I got into writing novels. Mm -hmm. uh, became I became um, friends with um, or became I became the pupil or protege, if you like. Of, um, uh, of a published writer named John Shirley, who is like one of the guys who invented cyberpunk. Oh, okay. Uh, he he actually was the one who introduced William Gibson to his publisher. Yes. Uh, and which resulted in Neuromancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, John was, like I said, one of the guys who invented cyberpunk. I mean, he mm -hmm. got for Max Headroom. He most recently, he he's been he did stuff for um, uh, I'm trying to I'm blanking um, one of the game uh, one of the video game franchises the one with the big daddies which one's that oh. uh, the the ones that the one that's underwater oh. uh, um, I'm not into video games it's sorry pretty good, pretty good game series and I'm completely blanking on it. Mm -hmm. uh, he did that. He wrote, he, and he's the co. He was also the co-screenwriter on The Crow. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, but yeah, he's he's he got his start in the seventies. Uh, I was a big fan of his work, mm -hmm. uh, and I started writing him. And then we met. Mm -hmm. We started. He started basically tutoring me through the mail on how to write mm -hmm. uh, and how to write novels. And when he felt I was suitable and this was at the time when the cyberpunk was rising up through him i got to meet bruce sterling mm -hmm. Bill gibson mm -hmm. uh, 
Shiner, uh, Rudy Rucker, uh, K.W. Jeter. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, so I got to know all these guys and I was, and originally I was trying to be a science fiction writer, you mm-hmm. know, like cyberpunk model. And then I realized I'm not good enough in the science. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not good enough. I'm good, at, good enough at the writing, but not good enough at the, at the yeah. science end of it. So, and at the same time, he was also doing horror work mm-hmm. and started get motion me towards this was at when splatterpunk was starting to emerge mm-hmm. he started me to, to do hard you know hard and so i've had this um character that i created in high school and had written various stories for and at one point had tried to do a black and white comic book with a friend of mine in new orleans who this was back when like the teenage mutant ninja turtles made you know black the black and white comic boom yes and, and he and I were going to try and, and launch this. And then he ended up getting a job working for Howard Chaikin on American Flag and left. And I just had this, like, this six-issue script. And so I rewrote it to be a novel, and I showed it to John. And that was Sunglasses After Dark. Mm-hmm. It becomes Sunglasses After Dark. Yeah. And he said, this is promising, but you need to, you know, he basically was teaching, you know, tutoring me through the mail on how to rewrite it and rewrite it and get it ready for proposal. And he said, and, and that's how it, I got it. He, and once he was satisfied, he introduced me to his, his editor over at, uh, at Ben Signet or New American Library, which mm-hmm. is England Random House. And, um, and I sent the, the first three chapters an outline and mm-hmm. picked it up and that's, that's how it got. That's how I got published um and there we go Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um so um and and that was back in 1987 88 Mm -hmm. yeah so and then i'm going to ask a follow-up question so how did you get your start working in comics i got my start working in comics because i had a best-selling horror novel at the time with the sunglasses after dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, I was doing a lot of short story work, mm-hmm. a lot of offers to do short story work, especially media tie-ins. Mm-hmm. And an approach to do by this guy um, at New Line Cinema to write a Freddy Krueger short story or novelette for uh, a tie-in called um, series called Freddy's Sweetest Nightmares or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, And the editor on the book yes. over at St. Martin's was Stuart Moore, mm-hmm. who hated working on his books. <laughs> <laughs> he hated them. And, uh, but he and I ended up developing a pretty good rapport. Mm-hmm. And he left St. Martin to work as an editor at DC Comics and got Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. They were looking to get a new creative team. And he, and he approached me and said, would you be interested in doing that? I said, oh, boy, would I? Mm-hmm. And he, and he, yeah, and, and the reason he, he wanted to pick me is A, because I was from living in New Orleans at the time. Mm-hmm. And of all the writers who did stuff for him, I was the one he had to rewrite the least. Mm-hmm. I had, had to make had to make the fewest corrections. So and I worked fast. So mm-hmm. he he approached me and I did a proposal mm-hmm. and um I got the job. And mm-hmm. you know, 
together for over two years. That so, is nice. And it's, so, yeah, it's not like, it's not like no one can, it's like, well, how'd you, how'd you get, get into comics? Well, I don't know if you can follow my footsteps exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, this is how I got there. Mm -hmm. Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you, how awesome was it to see your name on a comic book, like literally either on the newsstands or wherever you, how awesome was it to see it? Well, it, it was, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. It, it, it felt like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This mm -hmm. is where I'm supposed to be. And, and I always kind of feel a certain amount of, uh, oh yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My name on comic book. Oh yeah, that's me. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's same with the the Blade Runner one when they um, mm -hmm. posted the uh, cover of the, mm -hmm. the issue last month, and I went, "Oh yeah, that's my name up there." Oh wow. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, and they don't feel the name the 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 need to put Nancy on front of it now. It's just mm -hmm. yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, they, they always felt the need to make sure that my first name was on there. Mm -hmm. uh, let people know I was a woman. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, it, you know, but it's, um, yeah, it, it's very, it's very rewarding. And it's, and, and something I can point to. And, and mm -hmm. Everything, everything eventually ends up in my private archive, my mm -hmm. personal archive. So, at least one copy. Oh, it's gonna be that's nice. All right, so Nancy, you this is the perfect segue when you start to talk about when you got you know your first issue of Blade Runner. So uh, just for the listener, I'm just gonna give them a little bit of background on Blade Runner, Black Lotus, and please feel free to add anything. So now the first season it is already out. It has 13 episodes and it's on Adult Swim and Crunchyroll. Um, yeah. It is produced by, I'm going to, Alcon Entertainment. Alconet. Al, oh, I'm sorry? Alconet. Al, Alconet um, Entertainment. And this is the company I also produced it, the Blade Runner 2049 movie as well. Yeah. Now, for me, you know, I, I just watched the first couple of episodes of Blade Runner Black Lotus. May I ask you, what is um, Blade Runner Black, the Black Lotus series about? Well, it's uh, it's a uh, it's part of the the larger Blade Runner mm -hmm. uh, series now, which I don't I, I wasn't aware there was too much of it because yeah out of the movies, but apparently there've been there've been animated series and there's been uh, uh, some graphic novel series as well. Mm -hmm. And until I got brought in, I, I was only aware of the movies and and, and the novels. Uh, like I said, I'm up that my friend K.W. Jeter wrote that are part of that. Um, and uh, basically it follows the story of um, a young woman who, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, oh, yeah. um, who finds herself in being used as a pawn uh, amongst uh, uh, the billion, uh, the billionaires mm -hmm. that the, that run that world, mm -hmm. and, she, and she's trying to figure out what 
if what she remembers is real or fake mm-hmm. and what her purpose is and why, why she was created and how, mm-hmm. um, and, and what future she has. Cause she's, um, like the, I think there's just like, she's a part of a new breed of, of replicant, you know, mm-hmm. new model. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, there's not a whole lot I can tell you because yeah. I'm NDA on this. Yeah. But, um, but basically they're, they're trying to expand her and make her a more, um, uh, identifiable and relatable character, uh, and utilize the, um, uh, the concept of the replicant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the one thing that we've, the difference between 19, what was it, 1981, 82, when Blade came out, and mm-hmm. now, is that yes. if you go back and, and watch Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you realize the replicants aren't the bad guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, um, and basically expand more on, 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 the replicant as a uh, metaphor, yes, uh, for man's inhumanity to to man, mm-hmm. or, or, or or man's tendency to mistreat those it deems as lessers, mm-hmm. yes, or, or inhuman or mm-hmm. unhuman, you know, less than human, mm-hmm. and um, and that's basically what I'm you know I'm working on now is expanding a. Um, stories that are it, it, it's i wouldn't say it's an immediate sequel but it's like shortly thereafter the events mm-hmm. the, of the events uh at the end of blade runner black lotus the, mm-hmm. piece, the, the anime series mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it, it follows um the character of l mm-hmm. um, the black lotus mm-hmm. uh, going out into the desert to a get away from los angeles and the people pursuing her and b Mm-hmm. Uh, try and find her place in the world mm-hmm. and and what she is and isn't yes. and and we're expanding on that so and it also but it, it has a lot of a lot of action mm-hmm. lot of, uh lots lots of lots of action in it mm-hmm. and uh, uh set in the blade runner and it, it also gives it a chance to like show what the world looks like outside of la yes mm-hmm. thank out you out in the desert um you know, out in the Inland Empire, and uh, and how people are how people are struggling to get by because outside of outside of the, the mega mega cities, you know, it's more like you know, it's like post apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Really, is it's you know, either people living in Blade Runner mega cities or they're out in the boonies where it's like Mad Max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Um, that's the best way I can describe it and without giving away too much. Oh yeah, no, but, but that's going to be very, um, that's going to be very interesting to see because, because as you saw in one of my notes and, you know, and, and I, I'm going to say this because I was, I was kind of, as you saw in one of my notes, I was kind of joking. It's like, it seems like, well, the, the two Blade Runner movies is always in Los Angeles and it's always raining or they'll say it's, Oh, it's daytime and it still looks, Stop. Yeah, that's 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 due to 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 global warming and all that. I mean, it's it, climate change is because LA generates this 
field where it's just like raining and it's like nasty rain too. Mm-hmm. It's not like good rain. It's like, yeah. uh, it's like, and, and then out, once you get outside of that area, it's mm-hmm. everything, you know, we've, you know, we've, we've ruined our resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, you, you get to see that in uh, the, the sequel to Bla- the, the sequel to Blade Runner, you know, mm-hmm. Batista is, you know, you know, is a worm farmer because that's where all our protein comes from now. Oh, okay. Having to raise worms for a living as opposed mm-hmm. to, because we can't support, you know, livestock. Yeah. Wow. And, mm-hmm. So, oh, and it, 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 I would say it's it, uh, the Blade Runner universe, it's not that different from. It's a little bit more technologically advanced, but I would compare it to being somewhat informed by, you know, like the Soylent Green. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. Mm-hmm. It's like overpopulation and yes. and people are like, and, and it's kind of like, um, you know, people fleeing the world to go into the colonies because we've made it so unlivable. You know, like we're going, like we're fleeing the cities for the suburbs because, mm-hmm. you know, so that's that it's it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting metaphors to be used there. So yeah, the parallels mm-hmm. like science fiction is always the future talk you know, using the future to talk about what the hell's going on now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, how much research did you do for um, for you know for preparing for this miniseries? Like, well, um, they sent me a, lo- a bunch of links and everything, but most of it uh, uh, consisted of me rewatching both movies, mm-hmm. <laughs> both, yeah. both action movies, and then watching the Black Lotus series. And, and and the thing is, long before the Black Lotus series aired, they'd sent me the the uh, scripts for that. Mm-hmm. So I actually had new story and where it was going, the characters mm-hmm. and all. But then seeing it and you know, it, it, reading it's one thing, but that seeing it realized is another thing. Mm-hmm. And giving it a little, you know, little bit of touches here and there. Mm-hmm. And um, and going back and looking, you know, they also sent me um, some information about the timeline mm-hmm. as to the development of the replicants. And, um, mm-hmm. and although there, I, there's still a lot of gaps because this was all kind of created in reverse because mm-hmm. let's face it blade runner probably wasn't intended to be a franchise oh yeah yeah first of all, when the first movie came out yeah um it, uh, so it's um uh, a lot of it's done in reverse i'd read i'd actually read do android's dream of electric sheep mm-hmm. uh, back in the 80s yes um Late seventies, early eighties. I, I read quite a bit of Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. um, and so I try to keep. And despite everyone, oh, that's Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. I go, no, it's Philip K. Dick's. Yes, Android's Dream to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and I try to keep one foot in. I try to keep uh, Phil's intentions in mind. Mm-hmm. I never met Phil, but we had mutual friends. Yeah. Yes. So um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I try to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and that it's more. I'm supposed to be. I, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to dishonor Phil's. 
yeah. continue with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the mutual friends um, that you and Philip K. Dick, uh, it's um, K.W. K.W. Jeter, yeah. yeah. Also, also, George George Alec Effinger was another mutual friend. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, all these science fiction writers, they all knew each other back in the day. They would go to science fiction conventions together. They all knew each other. But uh, yeah, yeah, KW was uh, Phil's protege. Oh. And George was an old friend of, of Phil's from, from like writers forum, uh, writers workshops. Yeah. Um, so that's, like I said, I, uh, yeah, George is the one who told me that Phil had died. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, George and I were dating at the time and say, oh God, you know, Phil just died. He just got off the phone with his editor, Dave, the sheriff editor at Phantom. And, uh, you know, Phil had died. So, you know, it's a, it, you know, so it's, you know, I, I try to keep the, that in mind. No, oh, yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking, did, did you ever read any of, um, KW's, um, sequels to Blade Runner? Um, no, not, not his sequels to Blade Runner. Okay. I have, I have almost all his original novels. And mm-hmm. he's yeah. to me. I mean, I, I was a huge KW Jr. fan. Still mm-hmm. am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had, I have all his stuff like Dr. Adder and, uh, Blood Money. Uh, not much love it. it's it's still um uh dr adder uh the glass hammer mm-hmm. uh, his his heart he also did some amazing horror novels like mantis and uh um the night man mm-hmm. uh, but uh yeah uh, yeah jeter's like one of the one of the great science fiction writers in the late 20th century early 20th <coughs> but but unfortunately like a lot of us he has to like your original work doesn't get nearly as much attention mm-hmm. as your media tie-in stuff. He was like one of the guys who invented steampunk. Sorry, he was the. He's one of the guys who invented steampunk. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, one of his first novels was Morlock Knight, which is about you know, like centuries later, you know, a century after the events of the Time Machine, the Morlocks start reappear in London. They're coming up out of the ground. Uh huh. They're, all their all their uh, 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 technology is still based on stuff that was existed in the Victorian age. Yes, because it was all steam driven stuff. And he also wrote a novel called Infernal Machines, which is, which is also probably that they came out in the eighties. That was also one of the first steampunk novels. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a creative guy. He. he <laughs> I would say he was one of the cyberpunk guys. He's also mm-hmm. one of the innovators of steampunk. Um, my next question I'm going to ask you. So how did you get this awesome gig? Oh, doing Blade Runner? Yeah. Uh, because one of the guys who runs, who works for Alconet, uh, Jeff Connor, is an old friend of mine. He, I, he's known, I've known him. Uh, God. Uh, probably almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to, uh, I, I used to buy books from him back when he was publishing horror novels. Under, uh, he had a, a specialty horror press called Screen Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it would print stuff by like Ramsey Campbell and Michael 
uh, Michael McDowell and uh, Stephen King. And a friend of mine uh, provided covers for him, uh, artist named J.K. Potter, who was doing what we would call now call Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Photoshop. And he would, he would actually physically do photo collage to create these Lovecraftian scenarios. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you know, that was a good 20 years before Photoshop ever appeared. Yeah. Um, and I got to know, and, and I got to know Jeff from buying books from him. And then he went into uh, publishing. He worked for IDW for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and then he's been with Alconet. And, uh, uh, and he and I have uh, been friends since. And then he, he thought I would be a natural fit since I, I do, I'm known for strong, strong female characters. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that's what we did. You know, and I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. If you, if you really want me, I'll do it. And, I, and uh, uh, that's, that's how we, we are where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I'm getting ready to do issue four. I just turned in the script to issue three. I'm, uh-huh. I'm breaking down issue four right now. Mm-hmm. Issue one, uh, in fact, I just finished correcting the lettering on issue one, which will mm-hmm. come out. June first, mm-hmm. and uh, June, and then uh, issue two will come out um, early July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, since that's like the week, the week of Fourth of July. I'm not yes. really sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I'm uh, working with a Mexican artist named uh, Enid Balam, who is mm-hmm. <laughs> And I've had to explain that to a couple of people once. Like, so is you and this Enid woman? It's like, no, it's just, it's like Linda Mulder. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <doing it> again. <laughs> um, and um, but it, 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 it he he's Enid's doing some amazing work on this. It's very very uh, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, makes me think of it, it. Makes me kind of a reminds me of like 2008 AD, classic 2008 AD work. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you old enough to remember 2000 AD, which is where Judge Dredd comes from, mm-hmm. but um, very good artwork, very good artist. And, uh, there, and of course, there's going to be like scads of variant covers on this mm-hmm. thing, even up counting. And um, but I'm uh, I'm having a good time working on it. Oh, that's great. I'm just going to ask, do you want to give any other shout outs to your creative team? Um, just eat it. I mean, uh, I can't, I don't, I can't remember the name of the letterer or the ink. But I think Aiden's actually doing a lot of the inking. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he's, he, he lives in Mexico city. And mm-hmm. this, this may be an incentive for me to finally get up on my ass and go to Mexico city. I've always wanted to do that. He lives apparently on this little artist community. Oh, okay. A whole block of neighborhood that's nothing but people who work in co- the comics industry there. That's nice. I'd, I'd love to go there, and mm-hmm. hang out, get some get some real Mexican food, <laughs> and apparently they got some of the best Chinese food on the face of the earth in Mexico City. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because that's where the train that's where the train uh, tracks ended. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> and they, <laughs> I thought, okay, well that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 
Uh, but yeah, but um, yeah, I've been wanting to check out Mexico City for a while, so maybe go there, you know, go see, go get myself a just as a Nico Libres. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> some local doors. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna con- I'm gonna move on, Nancy. All right. I know you did um you um you participated in the Koshak Kickstarter. Yes. Yes. How big of a fan are you of the original TV series? Oh, I was a huge fan. I was mm-hmm. a huge, that, was, that was a very pivotal uh, moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few things, uh, and it's, it's, I'm also kind of, you know, uh, I've had all these weird interconnections later on in life with things that influenced me, like uh, getting to become friends, you know, good friends with both Lynn Wine and, and, and Bernie Wrightson mm-hmm. and working on Swamp Thing. And, yes. Uh, in this case, when I first saw, um, the Night Stalker. Yes. And this was like back in the day, it was, was like one of the very first ABC TV movies of the week. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was closer to like a, a legitimate movie yes. than the TV movies that later came out. Um, uh, the producer on it was Dan Curtis. Mm-hmm. Best known for being the producer on the Dark Shadows TV series. Oh, okay. And he later did other stuff as well, but uh, that's probably what he's best known for was doing Dark Shadows. Mm-hmm. And the screenwriter on it was Richard Matheson. Yes. And I already kind of, uh, and that was like, a, uh, Matheson ended up being very influential. But in fact, I'm, I'm in the process of writing an afterward to a special edition, uh, special collector's edition of Hell House. Richard Matheson mm-hmm. that his son asked me to write because uh, I actually wrote the only authorized prequel to Hell House mm-hmm. yeah, uh, about 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Matheson approved of and uh, so that was yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm Matheson being involved in that, being a writer on Twilight Zone, being a writer, having been a I've written a couple of episodes of Star Trek, being mm-hmm. you know, stuff, being a writer on um, Night Gallery, yes. and then having been a screenwriter for on several of my favorite uh, horror movies in the sixties and seventies, like like Hitting the Pendulum and um, The Raven, mm-hmm. a lot of those Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies, and mm-hmm. in particular, he did the screenplay for um, The Devil Rides Out. AKA uh, the Devil's Bride, okay. Lee, where one of the few times Christopher Lee plays a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that was like one of my favorite favorite Hammer films. It's probably one of the best Hammer films ever done. Mm-hmm. And and so I always the fact that you know that was a stamp of, of quality as far as I was concerned. If if Richard Bathams was involved, then yeah, I'll watch this. Mm-hmm. And that was roughly about the same time I had I had read, uh, or about uh, the uh, I Am Legend. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, which at that time had been re-released as The Omega Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to c- cash in on the Charlton Heston movie. Yes. And 
And that completely blew my mind on what is and isn't a vampire and what isn't isn't a vampire story. Mm-hmm. And so there were several things going on at once. That and I'm getting into like Tomb of Dracula, mm-hmm. also hugely influential. But also the Night Stalker, which is like taking the concept of the vampire, the classic vampire, reimagining it in a modern setting. Yes. In re- and how it would how people would deal with this. Mm-hmm the reality of it and that and that was actually a really at the time now i was like 11 12 mm-hmm. that was a scary tv show it still holds up it yes. still holds up as being creepy and as a police procedural mm-hmm. and 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 i have to explain to people so what was this night stalker i said well you remember the old man from christmas story <laughs> well, he was a vampire hunter yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so well, before, and and the thing is, when I first watched that, what I knew Darren McGavin for is having been Mike Hammer. Oh my God, that's he was the first. He was the first Mike Hammer. Mm-hmm. The Mike Hammer TV show back when back in the early sixties. Mm-hmm. He had a reputation as kind of being a tough guy, scrapper, as mm-hmm. opposed to you know, oh, he's just a reporter. Yeah, but he was like a two-fisted, you know, a, a, a scrappy guy. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, that was a hugely influential thing on me. And mm-hmm. then I went and read, and I read the novel it was based on. Mm-hmm. And that Jeff Rice, who to my knowledge has not done anything else. Mm-hmm. I think he's dead now. But, um, but that was high, highly, highly influential. Yes. And, and then I, I love that. I, I, I love the character from Whole Shack. I was less enamored of the sequel, The Night Strangler. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and in the the series itself. Yeah. Uh, uh, that I, I, lo- I love watching. I love the, the, the character interaction between him and the other guys in mm-hmm. his new room. And uh, I mean, the stories were kind of like that. But you could see the template for the X-Files there because yes. that's what Chris Carter it said he used mm-hmm. uh, the, the monster of the week and it was kind of uneven but there were some really good ones in there but and but you know McGa- darren mcgavin made made it worth watching because he, yes. he owned that character he mm-hmm. put his heart and soul into it and i and i and i loved his like i said his his connection with you know especially the little old lady oh uh, yes she was so sweet, and, mm-hmm. and you could tell he just like you know, they had a great relationship off yeah. camera too, and uh, and his relationship with his editor and oh, yes. all of that. It it, it, comb- it combined all the elements of, of what they call the newsroom drama, mm-hmm. and, and and I always thought I would love to have seen if, if, if a crossover between it and Lee Grant. Oh my god. <laughs> That would have been an amazing. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I remember, um, because I remember Lou Grant from Mary Tyler Moore show. But then when it switched over to a drama, I still remember that too. Oh yeah, and that was a great show. It was a great, yeah. I, I would. I was thinking, how is this going to transfer over? And, <laughs> and it worked perfectly because he was just a he was a newsman. Yeah, and it, to the point where you kind of forgot about the Mary Tyler Moore connection. Yes, because they never yeah. really went back to it, but. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to have seen Ed Asner fighting vampires. 
or werewolves or whatever, because you know, him and him and Carl teaming up, because you know, yes. it would have been great. <laughs> so, and, and Luke Grant's a great show. It's a great yes. show. It won all kinds of Emmys and mm-hmm. well deserved. And you know, we lost we lost him and Betty White within just a couple of months of each other. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, all and, and the guy played. You know, like we lost half of like the old Mary Tyler Moore show within like a year. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but Ed was, you know, I would have loved to have seen him. <laughs> and um, so it was a real easy sell to get me on board. <laughs> they get me on, you're going to do coaching? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> before I continue on with the, you know, a couple more questions regarding Koshak. Because I saw on James, I'm going to pronounce James's last name as best I can, Aquilone. Aquilone. Yeah, He posted on his Twitter feed a a page from the Swamp Thing issue that you had a certain quote-unquote reporter do a cameo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, I snuck Carl into uh, Swamp Thing. Yeah. (laughs) Now, come on, buddy. You got your 10 bucks worth. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but what about, what about, yeah, come on, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah he's, he's harassing Abby, bless her heart. But, you know, what about these questions? What about the, the disappearance of, of, yeah. of, 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 of Senator Ben Barron? And what about, you know, your, your supposed husband, Swamp Thing? is like, come on, you know, get him out of here. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's that is very much your, uh, the Carl Kolchak uh, bugging the hell out of Abby during, on a date in the French Quarter <laughs> after she leaves her husband. Swamp thing. Um, yeah, it's it's always fun to be able to sneak things like that in. So. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna ask, how did you um, team up with um, Warwick Johnson? Well, he was he was appointed to me. Uh, they, oh, okay. they, yeah, they basically, I that's usually how what editors and publishers do. They pair okay. you up, and uh, he paired me up with uh, uh, James. Paired me up with Warwick, who is um, still work. He's still working on it right now. He he didn't like what he was doing. He he got most way through it, then didn't like how it was coming out, and uh-huh. went back and redo it. So. I can't really tell you anything more than he he wanted to do the story justice. No, yeah, no, yeah, that that's understandable. So yeah, all right. So still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm gonna say I cannot wait to get my Kickstarter later this year. I cannot wait. I ordered the hardcover with Jerry Ordway's cover. Yeah, uh, I should have worn my. I, I, it's in the laundry. Uh, I should have worn my Cole Shack uh, Batman logo T-shirt. Oh yes, <laughs> you can't see that. it anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. But yeah, they said I said, "Hey, can I get one of those T-shirts?" And I went, sure, you know, what's your size? They sent me one. So yeah, I got the one with the uh, Batman logo, um, mm-hmm. Cole Shack on it. So yeah, yeah, Cole Shack. Yeah, yeah, he could, he could. I'd like, I'd like to see him team up with Doctor Strange. Yes, I mean, he could team up with almost any of the any of the um, supernatural characters in comics. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, I would mind seeing him, you know, square off against, you know, Dracula. Oh, yes. Um, it might not last long, but, <laughs> but, 
or at least uh, there's any number of characters. I, I, I really, I would have loved to have seen a crossover with him and the characters from the X-Files. Oh, yes. In fact, in fact there, my story hints that a couple of characters in the background at this thing are mm-hmm. Mulder and Scully. You don't see them. They're in the far background. Yes. But you get the hint that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I make a reference to the Millennium Group in it as well. Oh, my God. Well, since he played Frank Black's father. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, Darren McGavin was Frank Black's father. Oh, okay. I, 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 uh, Lance Henriksen is, um, yeah. I, I follow him on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I, eventually I'll have to like send him a, something from the, from the artwork. Because you know, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, I know he, I know he just adored Darren. So, yeah. But, but yeah, it's like, no, uh, Although the, the 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 parallel to to Carl and X Files was the character played by uh, Charles Nelson Riley. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, um, that was that was a that was an amazing turn from him. I I'd never seen him serious before. Yes. Yeah. Amazing in that. Because that was what was it? It was something. Like, he played that character twice. Yeah, Joe Chung on Doomsday or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. That was an X Files episode. Oh yeah, yeah. So I think it's one of the last things he did before he died. Yeah, and then I think, and I I know he did an episode in on Millennium as well yeah, too. Yeah, the same character. You know, yes. to be. Well, well, that's the whole weird thing is that apparently Millennium and X Files also exist in the same universe as Law yes. and Order. Yes. And and, and Homicide. Uh, Richard Belzer. because Munch. Yes. So, in <laughs> <and> X-Files. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I remember, because I remember reading this story, and I can't remember who came up with the idea, but they wanted to do one of those, um, because during the 90s, Picket Fence was on the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never watched it, but I know the two producers of the series were talking about doing a like a, like having Fox Mulder pop in its picket fence, but they yeah. couldn't. I, 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 it was supposed to be some some strange thing about sheep being killed or something. Well, you know? well, well, one of the characters and one of the actors in Picket Fence back then was Ray Walston. Oh yeah, my favorite Martian. Yes. Yeah, so that that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, all these things that kind of interconnected and have fun with them. Um, yeah, so it, you just have a little fun with it. Don't take it seriously. Don't try to, as Mystery Science tells you, you know, don't really try and think about it. Just relax. Enjoy yeah. the show. And just relax. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the, one of the guys who invented Mystery Science Theater also created Freaks and Geeks. Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all, we're all, it's everything and every, everything and it, and everything and anywhere all at the same time. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're all, we're all, it's all interconnected. Yeah. All right, Nancy, I'm going to slowly wrap things up. All right. All right. So, 
Now, I know you lived in New Orleans, like you mentioned, like from, I think, like 82 to 92. Now, did you ever go to Anne Rice's house during Halloween? Because if no. I remember correctly, didn't she open her house during Halloween to her fans? I don't really know. I, oh. I met her once. She uh -huh. would have, um, they would have this, what they call the vampire ball mm -hmm. at, uh, at the Collins Hotel. Okay. St. Charles, which is where I got married to my first husband, by the way. Uh, uh, and I went, I attended that once with my, pub, with my publisher and editor. Mm -hmm. uh, they were trying to get me, get her to give me an endorsement mm -hmm. and didn't really go over well. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. I know that she would have the vampire ball at the Collins Hotel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least that time they did. I don't know what it, what she did later. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't really I didn't really know her that well at all. Mm -hmm. so I just met her once. Okay. I think she uh, just moved back to New Orleans from San Francisco at that point. Um, I'm going to ask you. The next question is: What is the most fun or exciting thing that you love, either working in comics or writing novels or short stories? Thing that I love. Well, I always find it fascinating in in comics to see my words interpreted, mm -hmm. by, how other creative people interpret my words through visually. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's I've, I'm always fascinated to see how my scripts emerge from other people. Mm -hmm. I find that I find that to see my it's one thing to write. Mm-hmm. And I see what I see in my head. Mm -hmm. But I don't I never know how other people interpret my words until I see something from the artist. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly how I saw it is how they see it. Mm -hmm. Or 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 how they see it is it replaces to a certain extent how I saw it. Mm -hmm. Um so it, it is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, it, but like I said, I find it I find it fascinating just mm -hmm. to have that that level. Okay. And uh, and it's and it's always it's always rather gratifying. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm gonna ask you a couple fun questions. Favorite convention moment, whether it was it's a fan or as a creator. Um. um one of the more memorable. Uh, convention moments uh, was um, going to San Francisco, uh, in that San Diego Comic Con for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I just take it over writing Swamp Thing, but it, my the copy, it, the comics hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, and Neil was there signing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Neil and I had uh, had become friends like a year or so before, mm -hmm. and um, but I didn't want to assume anything, so mm -hmm. I just stood in line to mm -hmm. get my comics signed. <laughs> yeah, no, yes, yeah. And I came, walked up, and Neil looks up and goes, "Nancy, what are you doing standing in line?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't want to, and he just jumped up and he ran around the table, hugged me, dragged me right behind the table, 
That's nice. Sitting down next to him while he was signing, and we continued talking. And anyone, and, and all these people, who the hell is this woman? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and and uh, so that that was that was that was like that was a great moment. Um, and uh, and then later that same um, day, mm-hmm. he writes him for the first time. Yes. And. Um, and he embraced me wholeheartedly. He had, you know, I says, I, I'm so glad we finally got a woman writing this. It's about time. I'm, I'm, I've read your, I've read Sunglasses After Dark. You're going to do great. I love everything that you've done. And he said, Come on. And he grabbed me. He goes, Come on, let's go to a party. We're going to a room party. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up going to this hotel room. You know, it's like a suite, like a big suite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Frank Miller's there. Oh my God. Uh, uh, Grant Morrison, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Starlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard Chaikin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Neil was and Neil was there. Mm-hmm. And he basically. Uh, introduced me to everybody and you know we were all you know just there partying talking shooting the shit as, mm-hmm. as creators and I was like like I said my my novel my comics had not come out yet and so mm-hmm. I was just like like a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures from that room party. Um mm-hmm. you don't see me in them mm-hmm. but I, I went yeah I was there and I remember mm-hmm. this was taken and um and uh, it was it was quite it was quite humbling. It was quite humbling, and, but at the same time, they, I, I I felt like, yeah, okay, this is these are my people, these are my peeps. Here I am, mm-hmm. and um, and I managed to stay friends with most of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least or at least not not be active enemies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, it was it was um, it was very it was a very uh, it was a very good time. You know, some of those, it, it, the, your first convention as professional before before when when people in the industry know who you are, but before mm-hmm. the fans do, you'll never recapture that. Mm-hmm. You'll never get it. You'll you'll never recapture it. The the closest thing I I can compare it to is this. Um, Ringo Starr was once asked, "What was your best time as a Beatle?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "It was before the our album came, first album came out." Mm-hmm when we were recording in London and we could go anywhere we wanted to go and do what we wanted to do. If me and George wanted to get, take a, take a handsome cab ride, you know, a horse cab ride mm-hmm. to the city, we could do it. We could go into a nightclub and we could be left alone. Mm-hmm. We were having a great time and it was, and we were able to, and we didn't have to worry about being the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's exactly, I know exactly what you're talking about. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can actually go to a convention and and not have to worry about being you, mm-hmm. you know, where, where you're just you. You don't have to be yes. the you with the with the finger quotes around it. You don't. Have, mm-hmm. I don't. Have, I could just be Nancy Collins. I could just be Nancy. I didn't have to be Nancy A. Collins. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm, and, you know, and and Lord, you know, I've, I've, I mean, Neil and I have talked. You know, Neil has has transcended into a completely different level of of fame mm-hmm. but yeah you know, but yeah I, I watched that 
happened to him where he, you know, like, and I really wish I could go back to just being able to hang in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys and just talk and shoot the shit and not worry about everything. And I said, yeah, I, I, I can understand that. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, little sliver of time. Mm-hmm. And you one you can never roll back and get again. Yes. Mm-hmm. So savor it when you got it, folks. <laughs> I have to say that's really awesome what Neil did for you to come. You know, like you said, you like, my comic hasn't come out. I'm going to just stand in line. You know, I kind of, I know Neil, but I don't want to just. I'm not going to push my way to the head. Yeah, yeah. Again, you're just being respectful. <laughs> I do it now because I've known him for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And I'm old. I can't wait in line. <laughs> He's going to give out. Yeah. But I Eight think that <laughs> that was so cool that he came around. That he goes, what are you doing in line? Come on. And he that, that's just so nice. He came and hugged you. Yeah, and then, he was a sweetheart. He's a truly sweet guy. He's yeah. a truly sweet guy. The only, my, my other uh, good you know, good San Diego memory is running into Patton Oswalt for the first oh. time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, and I recognized him. I said, are you Patton Oswalt? And, mm-hmm. yes, I am. And, and then, and then I introduced myself and his eyes went and you wrote Swamp Thing. And I went, Oh God, <laughs> you are a nerd. <laughs> oh. that, that was 2010. But how, Oh my, that is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we've been friends since. I mean, he, he and I, you know, not I wouldn't say we're, we're buddy buddies, but oh, yeah. we every now and again on Twitter. Yeah. And, you know, he, you know, he's a sweetheart. You know, Pat was a real sweetheart. Oh, that's nice. He's a he is a true nerd. Mm-hmm. Out of it, and I'm so I'm so I'm so glad that he's part of Mystery Science Theater now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. I just want to say one more thing before I start finishing up. I just thought that it's so cool that you met Bernie Wrightson and he, and he like warmly accepted you going, it's, you know, finally we have a woman writing Swamp Thing. And And, Alan, Alan also, um, he and I've never met, but we used to talk on the phone quite a bit and he was very, very much uh, supportive of me and my decisions on the book. And he supported my decision to break up Swamp Thing's marriage. Mm-hmm. And, he, and his rules is don't really tell him that woman in right mind and stay in that. So, um, uh, and I felt he was very, um, you know, he was always very supportive of that. And, um, and it meant a lot to be able to talk to because Alan was also a huge influence on me as well. Just his, his way of re, re-seeing, reinterpreting, you know, what we thought was the standard, you know, mm-hmm. yes. taking established characters and finding the new facet of which to make them new again, literally yes. reinterpreting them. Yeah. And so he was highly influential on me as well. Uh, and uh, especially I, I uh, his run on, I first became aware of him when he was doing uh, what was Marvel Man in mm-hmm. the uh, Warrior magazines, and and then of course it, it stuff on D for Vendetta, mm-hmm. uh, and so I was very much um, 
picking up what he was laying down. And when they, and they said, yeah, he's going to be doing Swamp Thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll be there for the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then I proceeded to uh, live in the shadow for the, <laughs> for the entirety of our run. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I like to think that uh, his run informed mine to a great extent. And mm-hmm. I tried to be inspired without imitating what yes. he did. Yes. A um, couple more questions, and I, I already asked you this in before we got we, before we recorded. But I'm going to ask for our listeners: Have you and your family been to Hawaii? Uh, no, no. Uh, I would love to go someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, me and my friends uh, here in Georgia, we're we're big fans of tiki culture. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of friends have tiki bars in their houses. Uh, the pandemic really gave them uh, time and occasion to expand on their tiki bars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, um, friend, in fact, uh, this friend of mine, uh, one of his side gigs is designing tiki bars there. He's, he's, he's helped build them too. One mm-hmm. in uh, Savannah, Georgia, another mm-hmm. one up in uh, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, New York. And they're, they're beauties to behold. Um, and uh, so it's it's uh, I've always wanted to go, but unfortunately the situation has just not worked out. Yeah. Maybe someday, maybe someone will be you know, good enough to invite me to a you know, for an all expenses paid trip to Hawaii for a mm-hmm. conference or something. Or who knows? Yeah. I do have a friend who lives out there, Mark Laidlaw. He, mm-hmm. he he's not on the Big Island. He's on, I forget where he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but he he was the uh, guy who created uh, Half-Life, the video game Half-Life. Mm-hmm. Because of that, he can live in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> a, great, a great guy, great writer. Mm-hmm. All right. Any closing words to our listeners? Um, well, um, you can find my work on Amazon mm-hmm. uh, and, B- and barnesandnoble.com. In both ebook and published in print formats, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, comicsology. Keep an eye out for the Blade Runner Black Lotus series coming out this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, also the Coal Shack uh, Kickstarter. I think you can still join the Kickstarter. I want to say I think so. Yeah, it's the yeah, kicker back, back or kick or something. Yeah, the backup kick. Yeah, you may not be able to get the the more. Uh, elevated levels but you can at least get the books yes um and support the books and get t-shirts and stuff and uh i'm trying to think what else i'm doing i guess i've got the I'm, i've got the the hell uh, the hell house anthology that's gonna be that's gonna be beautiful they do amazing amazing limited edition work this thing's gonna be like 200 300 dollars a copy wow it's gorgeous mm-hmm. um I've seen some of the artwork for it. They do co- tipped in color plates and I'll be signing, you know, signing special mm-hmm. editions and stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's just gorgeous. Um, and uh, I will be at uh, Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina um, uh, this June, uh, uh, the, the next last weekend in June. Uh, uh, it's my very first Heroes Con. It's their 40th anniversary. And it's almost, unlike a lot of the comic cons, there's like no Hollywood people there. It's, it's all comic book creators. Mm-hmm. 
so um and I, and like this week for this weekend for free comic book day i'll be at dr nose in woodstock georgia mm-hmm. uh, with uh, uh, michael uh, mm-hmm. uh, Linzer and his wife Kristen, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh mark bagley i think is mm-hmm. going to be um and uh, uh, I'll be there from 12.30 to 3.30 mm-hmm. uh, Eastern Standard Time signing. I'll have a couple of copies of the Swamp Thing by Nancy A. Collins Omnibus. That's just a, yeah, that's what they, you know, it's like, what do we call this thing? Oh, we call yeah. it that. And you know, it, it is what, and they named it what it is. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is like 900 pages. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Uh, we already sold out. It sold out of the first edition almost immediately. And this, um, okay. And yeah. it's. Um, I'm very uh, pleased with it. Yes. Um, and it's apparently uh, introduced me to a whole new generation of fans because, you know, it's been 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, and all I can figure out is like it took DC slash Vertigo slash Black Label, whatever they call them now. Mm-hmm. So, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we have like an entire run, two-year run written by a woman? Mm-hmm. We really ought to reprint that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because I had given up on it ever being reprinted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To my knowledge, there's no no plans for a trade edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it uh, it's done very well for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's beautifully done. They managed to keep most of the original color steps. Um, colors done by Tatjana Wood, the uh, widow of Wallywood. Oh, okay. It's got um, color uh, covers by uh, Charlie Bess. Yes. Mm-hmm. It'll also be at Char- uh, but both Charlie and Russ Braun, who also did some of the artwork for Swamp, uh, Swamp Thing, is going to be at Heroes Con. So we're going to try and get a little Swamp Thing get together and sign books together. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, uh Collect, you know, collectible. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and like I said, it's it's hardcover, so you could actually read it without it falling apart. Yes. And mm-hmm. it weighs seven pounds, so you can actually use it to kill a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I'm like, man, you could like, if somebody hit you over the head with this thing, yeah, you know, no, that, uh, it, it's a doorstop to put it politely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I come from the era where, well, I always like, you know, like, like, I come from the era where you could actually kill, where murder, people were murdered in movies with typewriters, yes, and phones. Yes, <laughs> yes, I remember. So yes, judges, okay, you kill a man with this. Okay, <laughs> can't do it with any of those anymore. No. <laughs> But uh, but yes, I I, I I have produced a murder weapon. <laughs> um, See, you can't have that much of a delay to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Nancy. On that note, <laughs> I'm gonna close up. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm a finished person. <laughs> Now you know. Now you know why I know some comedians. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I'm I uh, mahalo for having me on your show. I appreciate that. No, Nancy. You know, just you know, I wish I wish you all the success 
with your Blade Runner Black no Black Lotus mini series. You know, and, and the 2032 out of it because that made it a real mouthful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, and then you know, and and thank you for your time, Mahalo. Thank you for your time, you know, for giving me the opportunity to interview you. I mean. Nancy, you have an incredible history. You know, it, you know, I mean, it, every, everything from, you know, you, 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 you know, it's like, um, you know, literally, I mean, we're talking about the book of seduction of innocence to basically, you know, um, to talking about, you know, you, you know, um, you know, knowing, you know, gay men, yeah. You know, um, it, it's incredible, you know? I didn't even mention the fact that uh, I'm probably the only DC creator who actually had a relative who was a uh, villain on the Bat Adam West Batman TV show. Please tell me this story. Uh, that, my, yeah, my, my, um, uh, my cousin was Tallulah Bankhead. Uh -huh. She played the Black Widow, not the Black, not the Black Widow anyone knows now. But uh, yeah. this is the last thing she did before she died. She played uh, the the Batman villain, the Black Widow. Uh -huh. And uh, and I did not know that Tulula was my cousin mm -hmm. at the time. I was about six or seven. Yeah. And I'm watching Batman. Yes. Dad walks in and go and points at the TV and goes, "That's your cousin." What? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, 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 yes, I, yeah, you, you, for a six-year-old kid, that would, like, blow anyone's mind. <laughs> yeah, I was, like, way into Batman, like, they all, all kids were, but, you know, what? Yeah. Yeah. No one believed me when I said that, either. I went to school, and, yeah, no, she's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she also worked with Hitchcock. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, yeah, she's the female lead in Lifeboat. Oh my god! Yeah, she was. She was. Uh, Lula was quite. She was. Daddy wouldn't let her hang out with us because she was quite a. She was quite a firecracker. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, that's. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of intersection here. Uh, <laughs> but. But yeah, that that I've decided that's going to be my cosplay is is Tallulah is, is the Black Widow. Mm -hmm. Someone to um, make um, replicate her her costume for me, ah. so I can do cosplay at conventions and and no one will know who the hell I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except actors, the only people who know yes. y'all actors. So that's about it. <laughs> All right. I, like I, I'm going to ask any more amazing stories before I wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. No, but thank you very much. Now, um, for listeners, if you are a new comic book reader or a lifelong comic book reader, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, now. Um, if you are a new comic book reader or a lifelong comic book reader, please check out Blade Runner Black Lotus miniseries from Titan Comics. The first issue comes out on June 1st, and the second issue comes out on July 6th. Um, 
and also too, you know, if you are a new Swamp Thing fan, and if you're, you know, I, um, and if your local comic shop has a copy of Swamp Thing by Nancy Collins Omnibus, you know, please check that out. You can definitely get it from Amazon and uh, uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Oh, okay, all right. And also, it collects store again. It collects um, issues from one ten to one thirty nine. Swamp Thing Annual Six and Seven. Also, a story from Black Orchid Number Five, and a story from Vertical Jam Number One. Mm -hmm. Plus, there's also uh, unpublished sketches by uh, Russ Braun and. Um, Charles uh, Bess and um, Daryl Hickson uh, in there, you know, like very unused cover uh, cover sketches, um, and also a um, uh, a pitch for a Vertigo crossover series involving Swamp Thing um, called uh, Arcane Blood that uh, I pitched to, to DC and they never used, mm -hmm. and they, they turned it down. And and but you get to read what would have been this crossover series that I was proposing for them. So that involved, that centers on uh, Tefe Holland, um, Swamp Thing and Abby's daughter. Oh, okay. And it, it also involved like at the time, Books of Magic, Hellblazer, mm -hmm. um, uh, Shade the Changing Man, mm -hmm. uh, Animal Man, and a couple of other characters, you know, a couple of other of the series that were a part of the larger Vertigo universe. Uh, yeah, Books of Magic, the Three Witches are in there. Mm -hmm. That, uh, that kind of stuff. So, wow. yeah, the vertigo that doesn't exist anymore. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, and I want to thank Drew, the close comment for fun and profit. Drew, thank you very much for putting this episode together. Thank you for all your hard work behind the scenes. And if you are a new listener, please check out new episodes of Comics for Fun and Profit that comes out every Saturday. And I want to thank you, the listener. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode. Until next time, guys. Aloha. Aloha. Hey, it's the good folks at Comics for Fun and Profit reminding you that nobody Patreons like we Patreon. So join us at C4FAP and go over to Patreon slash Comics Fun Profit and sign up at a level of your choosing. There's various tiers with various goodies for you. Somebody, something that everyone gets at any level is you get to be a part of our Slack channel community and you get early and ad free access to all our episodes. But wait, there's more. So go over to Patreon slash Comics Fun Profit and check out all we have to offer. We urge you, sign up today. <laughs>